0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the For the Love of Sports podcast. My name is Ian Vissera, and I'm your host. And my guest today is an associate producer over at NBC Sports Boston. He is Max Letterman. Max, thanks for taking the time to come on, and how are you?
1: I'm pretty good. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure.
0: No problem. So how is life in quarantine for you so far, and just what are you up to?
1: Uh, you know, it's it's a struggle, just like, you know, I'm sure it is with a lot of people. Um, I have two kids, uh, a seven year old and a three year old. So uh, it feels like I am incredibly busy, even though I'm not really. I'm just trying to corral them. My wife, uh, you know, has been working remotely full time through this whole thing. So I've kind of gotten the teacher duties. uh, And, you know, we're swapping off responsibilities like that. But, you know, all things considered, and it's, it's hard to really talk about because, you know, there's so many people dying. And it's really sad. But um, for me personally, with my kids, it's been, you know, it's been a nice uh, a nice chance to, you know, just spend literally every second of your life with them. Uh, and I think, you know, as the years go on and we, we all look back, we'll probably look back fondly for these moments where you're just with your kids in your house. But uh, everything outside is pretty sad and scary. So we're just trying to find the, uh, the silver linings where we can.
0: Mm -hmm. and how's the homeschooling been going for you teacher letterman how's that working out
1: uh you know luckily the the school um the school district sends like sends like a weekly learning grid and so when my daughter doesn't want to do something i'm like, look i'm just going by what your teacher told me so you know i can you know if you want i can email her or text her and tell her that you're not doing the work or we can just do it and you know she's pretty good uh but it is you know it's a challenge and uh it's I always, uh, I always admired teachers and it was definitely something I thought about as a career. Um, I never, not too seriously, but it was something that I, I always, it was always a choice because, you know, to me it was like, I love teachers. They're great. Um, and I love, you know, I love kids. I love helping and all that stuff, but man, I could never do it. Boy, the patience that you need to have. And I mean, these are my kids and they're, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm with them 24 hours a day. Uh, so it's a little bit easier to get frustrated, but, um, yeah, we're making it work, but I'm just glad that there are good human beings that decided to be teachers that are way better at it than me.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. I know that's something for me. Anyways, I would not have the patience for.
1: Yeah. That's why uh, when people ask, Oh, do you want to coach in your kid's sports? I'm like, Oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? I don't have that kind of patience. I really don't.
0: Mm-hmm. So what have they been doing to sort of keep themselves under danger and all of this? And how have you been fitting into that?
1: Uh, just playing, playing, and they—they we're lucky. Uh, the age gap is is a pretty good amount um, because you know they're they're not too close where they kind of don't you know get along a lot. I feel like if they're a little closer in age, they fight more. They my daughters don't fight a lot, um, so they just kind of been playing, and you know we have to survive in advance through this process. So we're you know giving them way more screen time than we normally would. Um, but yeah. we just try to make sure that it's all, you know, educational apps and stuff like that. And uh, they're not allowed to go on YouTube without us. And, you know, and, you know, I just find like YouTube videos that are, you know, phonics videos and stuff for the three year old and doing some reading and movie nights. And we're, we're, my wife and I try to find like some sort of weekly, like a tent pole event, you know, something to look forward to. Uh, so, like, you know, we had a, a campfire a couple of nights ago. We roasted marshmallows. So we had a couple days of lead up to talking about that. And then we, we had a sleepover one night where they, uh, the three-year-old got to sleep in the seven-year-old's room. And, you know, I'm fitting in by just helping them with the forts and stuff like that and the mm-hmm. teaching.
0: And I know something that's been sort of something we've been looking forward to as basketball fans once a week, every Sunday night is the last dance. So I just wanted to know your thoughts on it so far and what you've made of the whole documentary series
1: man i love it i love it uh i you know it's perplexing when i see some people with their criticisms of it uh you know people that i'm i'm friends with you know critiquing the journalistic value of it i'm like well i mean i think you need to your expectations need to be different if that's your takeaway because it was you know it was jordan's film crew i mean it was like it was always going to be his side of it and that's exactly what i want you know i want to just see it you know there's not a lot, uh, other than the inside stories that you could learn about something that already happened, you know? Um, you know, the, you can learn like the details of certain situations and things like that. And that's what we're getting. And it's an inside look at, you know, one of the greatest dynasties ever. And I also really, really like the way it's put together. I mean, I don't think enough people are talking about what a great job they've done with you know, going, you know, from the first episode when it was, you know, the 1997, 98 season, and then going all the way back to his, you know, his high school and college years. And like just how that timeline has slowly crept up and caught up to each other, the way they go back and forth, man, that's great. I love that. I'm really enjoying that. And I think the soundtrack's been great. You know, it's take me back to you know grade school hearing all those songs. And uh, it's just, uh, it's been great. And I, I've enjoyed learning new things, but I also just don't care if it's not like 100% objective because, man, come on, what are we trying to do here? Trying to relitigate something that happened a really long time ago? I just want to be entertained for two hours on Sunday night, and that's what's happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely doing its job in that regard so far. I know for me initially, I thought something that was a little bit more confusing was that timeline, how they kept jumping back and forth, especially if there wasn't an initial point to sort of springboard and get you there. But like you said, as it's gone on further and further and the gap has sort of shortened, I definitely think it makes it a lot easier to figure out and understand. And another thing that I've really enjoyed so far is how they've been using the iPads to show whether it's Jordan or some of the other guys, the clips of what the other players have been saying. I mean, last night, him laughing about Gary Payton, that was just an all time sort of scene right there in that. What's been your take on that?
1: I love it. I love it. And it's almost, and I don't know, uh, I would love to hear. Uh, the decision-making process behind that. I wonder if they had Twitter and social media in mind when they did things like that, because those are like meme gold, absolute meme gold. Just, to, just the still shots of him laughing at the monitor or looking surprised at the monitor. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just, I mean, it's smart. It's really smart and it's great. It's great entertainment and it's funny. And I also wonder what Gary Payton mm-hmm. thinks after watching it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, what else have you liked from the production aspect
1: of it? Uh, I like the, yeah, you know, just how they tie the things together. I like, um, I love the old clips of like the Sports Center people and just because uh, to me that's what I love, and it's what's so special about this this topic about the the Jordan era Bulls is that you know especially as they got really good, the media was changing, and so there's so many great uh, just news clips of it you know, it takes a long time to track that stuff down. But I know when we did our um, our 86 Celtics documentary, it was a lot harder to find stuff like that because just even just a few years before, it was, stuff wasn't, uh, there wasn't as much coverage, you know, just in terms of the massive amount that started to happen in the 90s. And it was harder, you know, it's harder to find the stuff that's saved. You know, we were doing newspaper clippings and stuff like that. And you could see the 80s stuff was a lot more of you know newspaper still shots and things like that um and a couple old clips but then once they get to the 90s it's all you know almost all of it is old uh news clips and i you know i'm a sucker for stuff like that
0: Mm -hmm. and i think that's really the epitome of what we saw i think it was last i think it was in the episodes last night when he goes to retire and you see just that whole swarm of media that's there and it looks like every person in the country is in that room right there trying to cover that event
1: Right. And that's what I don't think people even I mean, I was alive for Jordan's career, but boy, you know, I don't I'm not going to pretend like I grew up watching Michael Jordan. I didn't. I didn't. You know, I. but you knew him. Everybody knew Mm -hmm. who he was. Every single person on the planet basically knew who Michael Jordan was. It was a level of fame that is just not a thing anymore uh, outside of, you know, especially not in sports, because I mean, it was the perfect time to have the best player to ever play the game. Arrive on the scene, then the dream team, and just the emergence of cable and just media, the media explosion, the interest in sports, and you just created, and Nike was so good about creating that image and his brand and his sneakers it was just it was the perfect you know combination of factors that just made him one of the most famous human beings to ever live, and it's just insane the amount of coverage, the amount of press that were around him, the paparazzi following him he's just lucky that there weren't camera phones back then you know he could duck out of areas he could have private parties and not have to worry about it um but man it was you know for as blessed as he was it was a it really they do a good job i think of showing how tortured he was leading up to his um the 93 retirement and then the uh the end of the the bulls era so uh that that is one of my takeaways just the the massive amount of of fame that he had and it's something like you know, people can argue about whether LeBron is a better basketball player and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, LeBron hasn't had to deal with the level of fame that Michael Jordan did. It's a different world.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. What do you think are going to be sort of the focal points of the episodes next week? And what are you looking forward to as the series sort of wraps up?
1: Boy, I could I could probably do a, a full hour on just the final shot there uh, versus the Jazz Um, that was one of the memories that I do have very clearly in my head. Uh, I don't, I wasn't, I wasn't watching the game, but I remember just the the highlights, just sports center. And it was right around the time that we got cable at my house. And so it was, it was just a massive moment. And it was like, wow, he went out on top making that shot. It's a dream. It's like everything about Michael Jordan's career up to that point was like, you know, it was story, it was storybook, you know, like, Mm -hmm you know he even retired in the middle of it and went to play baseball and then came back and was just once again the best player in the league and won three more championships going out on that shot you know it i could go i could use a whole hour on that but you know like i said it's not like we're really learning like we know what happens they win mm-hmm. um i'm interested in just some of the smaller stories some of that stuff and you know as a as a kid you never i i wasn't you know entrenched in the the sports uh media culture as i was um or i wasn't back then as i am now so i don't remember just how open jerry krause was about basically hating phil jackson getting rid of him and then the craig sager question was great classic
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh what a question that was and it's like something that man only craig could probably have pulled that off asking that question of jerry krause. you know how's how's the are you surprised the teams you know Still responding well, even though you you know you and the coach are backstabbing each other and all this stuff. And I I agree with Jerry. It's not a backstab. It was a front stab. He wasn't going behind his back. He was stabbing yeah, that's right. That's for sure.
0: Him. It's crazy to me too, especially with all that was going on. Like you were saying, it being the perfect storm of media, because there was just enough in that rise of it to cover it. But just oh my gosh, imagine that going on now. Basically, them saying if he goes eighty-two and zero, he won't be back. That's just ludicrous. I mean, it was then, but just the outlash and backlash of everything you would get right now.
1: It's yeah, it would have been untenable. I mean, it, it it was close to untenable then like Phil Jackson was at the peak of his powers at that point um, with his ability to just kind of to keep the room together, which is incredible when you see all the, the just the hoopla around that that team. But man, um, if cuz what I think they say what like the issue with social media is that when I was a kid if I was getting bullied at school at least I got to go home you know and kids these days you know it just you don't ever get to leave cuz social media is always on it's you know people are always pinging you you know on whatever on Instagram and stuff and it just it never ends and so for the athletes it's the same way like Jordan had an escape and the players had an escape when they just went home to their families you know they could just not read the paper or watch SportsCenter center that night but now it's like you know, someone's gonna be texting you. Oh man, did you see what this guy said? To you said about you, and you know, did you see this tweet and this and that? It's just like it's nonstop. I don't know how they would have been able to pull that off in this era. Mm-hmm. So, rather than talking about this for the next hour, which we
0: easily could, I want to shift gears for a little bit and talk about when the NBA shut down when coronavirus and COVID was in that sort of infancy stages over here in the U.S. When the NBA decided to cancel indefinitely or postpone um, their season. Where were you and just what was that vibe like for you from a professional standpoint?
1: So I was actually, um, I, so I just like in the mornings listen to NPR. And so like I had heard about the coronavirus dating back to January and, I, and it was scary but then it just kept getting scarier and scarier. And I got the feeling that things were gonna start um, shutting down. And I think the NCA did it first, right? they or they made said that the tournament was going to be without fans and um and i was just like man it's only a matter of time before the nba just has games without fans and then that wednesday before uh the wednesday of the gobert incident you know the warriors were supposed to play the next night and california had uh made it so that they they had outlawed events with that of that size and so i was expecting it to be that's how we were going to do the rest of the season was going to be with no fans. But then when as soon as the thing with Gobert happened, it was just like, man, as I was leaving work, I, I literally I said goodbye to people like, you know, I don't know when the next time I'm going to see you guys is because it's I don't foresee a season. You know, this is going to be this is going to be a a while because you just have you just with something like this, you just have to shut everything down. People just have to stay away from each other. And uh, and now that the players have it, this is this is going to be tough because you know how do you start a season that one player gets you gotta stop again so Mm -hmm. um so that's that's basically the timeline for me was i was kind of expecting something but i didn't you know it was quickly evolving so as soon as the gobert thing happened i was like all right well season's gonna get paused and it did and um and here we are really so we'll see what happens
0: and so what have you been doing so far from home remotely and how have your sort of responsibilities changed, especially without live basketball going on?
1: Yeah, um, it's it's been a challenge, but we have been putting uh, the Celtics classic games on uh, going back through um, our archives and, and we needed approval from the league just because of rights issues. But they, you know, I think the league was like, wow, you know, these networks that have you know, purchase the rights for these games that aren't happening or are probably suffering. And so they've, they've been really, really, really good about letting us air games as long as we get them a list. And so once we got our list of games, we've been doing Zoom interviews with Brian Scalabrini. We'll interview a player that was involved in some way with the game. And it's my job. I sit in on the interviews, take notes, and then I write little captions to be for the editor to put up on screen for like 10 seconds. So it's, you know, it's enough work to really especially with my duties with the kids to make me feel like I'm busy which is insane when you really think about it but you know it's not it's not easy um well I shouldn't say it's not easy it's you know it's a challenge to get everything done you know while dealing with kids and your wife's working and stuff like that but um so that's how I've been keeping busy we have a couple other uh you know long-term initiative projects uh big picture stuff that we're working on um you know, at the, like the RSN level for uh, a lot of the NBC sports affiliates around the country. So working on things like that. And then we're also working on um some more online shows that we can do for the, um with our Celtics group. So finding a way to, uh to stay busy, stay relevant as much as we can. It's really challenging when there's the sport that we cover and all sports aren't happening, but you know, that's the great thing about the NBA is that, you know, I did a segment today. I don't know when it's going to be um, posted, but where I just read a bunch of like really terrible tweets that I've come mm-hmm. across on Twitter or that people have sent me because I've been asking and and just had uh, Scal and Kyle Draper, you know, tell me rate right how awful the take was and things like that. So, you know, if if they want me to try to, you know, find stuff to talk about, I'm going to go to Twitter and I'm going to find some really garbage takes and we're going to make fun of people.
0: And I'm sure Twitter doesn't disappoint you with that. Never. Uh, too funny. So shifting gears a little bit, um, you already were mentioning how it's going to be tough for the NBA to come back because if one player gets it, you're going to have to shut down again. But what do you see as the future right now for the league? Do you think they'll be able to finish off this season? Are they going to have to start again next year? Maybe with starting on Christmas Day? Just what do you think the potential timetable is for the NBA return?
1: You know, it's, it's all going to be speculative, but I think um... – You know, it's really about the testing and there's been, you know, it's, so that's up to like the science people, the the medical uh, area and the government level infrastructure to get testing widely available uh, because the vaccine's not coming for, you know, probably until next year at some point. So it's going to be, it's going to be hard to resume normal activities until there's a vaccine, but at least if there's testing that's widely available, I think you can have, um, The bubble scenario in Disney World, which I thought was ridiculous the first time I heard it, but man, it makes sense now the more you think of it, and I do, I'll never say don't start the season again, as long as you can do it safely, I think that you should try very, 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 very hard to find a way to finish the season, um, at least in some way, you know, if you can't, like, it's just hard, because if you don't finish the regular season, and then you do some sort of watered down playoffs, then the whole asterisk thing becomes legitimate. Like if people want to put an asterisk on, you know, a championship because of a short and regular season, you know, they can do whatever they want. But I think, I think we all want to see how this this year's teams would do. And um, if there's a, and we're, we're just desperate for, for stuff to watch. I think it's like a, it's like a human service, you know, a service for humanity to have games. Um, Mm -hmm. So if they can find a way to keep the players um, safe, And limit, you know, make sure that nobody's spreading um, the disease around, then they absolutely will for sure do it. I think they're going to try very hard to find a way to finish the season. Um, The bubble location seems to me the most likely scenario. Um, And as far as next season goes, it's another great question. I think I just have a hard time seeing how they could start the season um, at the regular time just because, you know, they're not playing they're not going to be finishing the regular season within the next few months. So, or this year's season, the next few months, so unless they just completely cancel that season and we do get a vaccine early and testing's great. And then they decide to just start at a normal time next year. They'll do it. But I just, I think they're going to find a way to finish the season over the summer and push the start of the regular season next year to Christmas.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly wouldn't be a bad thing at all. Especially I, I know personally, I'd like to see if you got to finish the season somehow, some way but it's just going to stink the further and further you get out from it it's going to be harder and harder to do so but at the very least as long as you can have a full playoffs even if you have to miss a couple regular season games I don't think that's the worst thing in the world especially when you know usually in the NBA it's those top teams you know making the deep runs in the playoffs obviously you'd like to have as many games as possible but I think as long as you can keep that playoff format intact I, I don't think you'll see as much of an asterisk as you possibly could
1: yeah, and, and think about it. There's been lockout-shortened seasons before, so it's not like a full 82 games is required. Um, I think the argument would be for teams on the bubble that are like, you know, we thought we were going to have more games to try to, you know, make up the five games or whatever to get into the playoffs. And, like, I get it, man. That sucks. But um, I don't – I think Adam Silver said this. Like, there's. It's just like we have to decide which bad – Which bad choice we make, you know, like there's not a Mm -hmm. perfect choice, there's just not. And it's because we're like, there's no good solution to any of this that we're in, you know, in society, you know, like people want there to be the economy to open up, but you know, lots of people not to die. I'm like, yeah, me too, but you know, like it's there's everyone's hurting and suffering, so we need to find a way to limit that. And if you know, on a much less important scale, we need to find a way to limit the damage in terms of teams being upset if they didn't you know make the playoffs when they thought they had a chance, you know, but somebody's going to be mad, no one's going to be uh satisfied one hundred percent, but they're going to try really hard to to continue this season somehow because there's just too much money at stake, and there's just a desperate uh, desire for it
0: mm-hmm. so if we do get the season back this year, what do you think of the Celtics chances and how far do you think they could go in the playoffs
1: Well, I thought um they, the matchup that they're in now with the playoffs would be the Sixers. And I think that even though the Sixers actually played really well uh, early on versus the Celtics, I would trust Brad over Brett Brown in a seven game series. And, you know, with the injury concerns with Ben Simmons, but now it's like with all this time off, um, it really becomes who can get in shape faster. And I know there's jokes to be made about Joel Embiid uh, there that I'm just going to skip. But uh, I think, I think the Celtics have just as good a chance um, as, you know, any team to to take out the Bucks in the East. Uh, it's going to be difficult when you go out West because uh, – although, you know, it's – the Celtics, I think, have exceeded expectations so much this year that we, it's really not fair to put any sort of ceiling on them because they weren't supposed to be as good as they ended up being. Jason Tatum wasn't supposed to be, like, a superstar, like, already, you know? He was supposed to take a step, and he did. And then he just took another, like, huge, massive leap in the middle of the season. Uh, and, you know, coinciding with Kemba needing time to rest his knee, and now Kemba's got a ton of time off, and he'll be healthy. And, you know, they're playing like a team. Uh, it, I don't know how they would match up a, in a playoff series against a LeBron-led team or a, uh, you know, or Kawhi and the Clippers, I think, would be really difficult. But, you know, as far as the East goes, look, I've seen the Celtics, you know, take care of the Bucs. The second game of the season when the Celtics uh, – or not the second game of the season, second week of the season when they came back from that huge deficit and beat the Bucs, I was shocked that they did that. And that just kind of showed you what kind of team they, they are this year. And that's the kind of team that Boston loves is those – you either have to meet expectations or overachieve. Uh, um, if you fail to meet a- expectations, you'll be – you know, destroyed, but as long as you meet them and, and exceed them, people love you. And I think it's just, this is the kind of team that Brad is best at coaching the underdogs, the, the guys that people are, you know, writing off. And again, with Jason Tatum taking leap that he did, you know, who knows, because it's not like he was bad in the playoffs as, as a ni- 18, 19 year old. He was, uh, he was scoring 18 points a game, mm-hmm.
0: you know, leading. Yeah. He was sensational. Lead,
1: yeah. Helping lead the Celtics to game seven of the Eastern conference finals. So, um, look, I wouldn't bet against them i think I think that they could they could make a run to the finals. I don't think they could win the championship this year, but uh I think that they could make i don't know if I'd bet on them making it to the finals, but I think they could for sure
0: yeah i'm I'm with you on that hundred percent, especially if you get out of the east and then you just get in that finals, you know at that point, best of seven, anything can happen, but in terms of getting out of the east. Philly, your team, uh, I think, honestly, that's that's their hardest matchup. I know that's something, like you were saying, they struggle with them earlier in the year, but if Philly's clicking and they're getting it together, obviously their home road discrepancies have been just massively insane this year. But that size, especially with Horford being over there, just Embiid and just – that's a lot of size that Boston, I don't think, can match up with. Now, like you said, I would take Brad over Brett Brown in that series, and it's going to come down to if the Celtics could space them out enough. But – that Philly matchup scares me. Like you said, I think they can handle the Bucs or at least, you know, take a move game seven. I think they could get by the Raptors, but Philly's the one that scares me.
1: Yeah, and the thing is like, so um, in a vacuum, you know, you'd, you'd probably say Philly for sure. I mean, they're just, they're, the team is assembled in a way that the Celtics really can't match up with them. But that said is that, they don't fit the pieces that the the Sixers have don't fit together. They just don't. And yeah. it's not like they've been spending the last couple of months, like working on their chemistry. They're all at home, you know, maybe they're getting along, which is nice and it's important, but until you're on the floor practicing together as a unit, uh, until Brett is figuring out his rotations uh, better. Uh, it's just, I just don't believe that there'll be a cohesive team uh, when the season starts back up. I think that that is a, a real big disaster in Philly. And it's sad because there's so much talent there and there's two just transcendent players um, that, you know, Pinky died for, as Joel likes to say, um, you know, and, and it seems like the front office may have squandered a real good chance by making some really poor decisions with their cap space. And, you know, the Al Horford signing at the time seemed like a great idea just to get him out of Boston Uh, you know, because he's one of the better Embiid defenders, but now you look at it, it's like, man, you wasted all that money and you cannot move him. That's a really difficult contract to move. Um, so I'm already, as a Sixers fan, thinking about the offseason, which is crazy. Uh, because we don't even know when this season is going to start. Um, but I, I, I just, I just believe in Brad. I think he's such a good coach. I think that, um, in the playoffs, in a seven game series, it really matters. I mean, if your team is like overwhelmingly better than the others, you could have, you know, David Blatt, you know, coach you to the finals. But mm-hmm. if, you're, uh, if your team's close enough in talent, the I, you know, I give the edge of the team with the better coach.
0: Mm-hmm. And especially if they would be um, at home in that scenario and Philly has struggled this year on the road. But moving ahead, so you mentioned the offseason right there, thinking about it a little bit for the Sixers. But from the Celtics' perspective, what would be sort of the moves you would want them to make or think that they should make come the off season time, or does it depend on how the season shapes out and finishes?
1: Um, you know, it, it certainly depends, but I think that um, they're going to, there's going to need to be some sort of um, consolidating, I think, because they've got a lot of, um, you know, rookies and young guys that, you know, what are you going to be able to count on sophomores that you couldn't really count on as, uh, as rookies. Um, and they have a bunch of draft picks and, you know, I would say the position of need would be, you know, a center or a big, but uh, Cantor and Tyson played so well this year, but can you count on that next year? I don't know. I think you'd probably want a more defensive, uh, just, I don't know if it's a vertical threat, Uh, anything, everything that Robert Williams is supposed to be, I think they need. Mm -hmm. And it's a real shame what happened with him this year because he had a chance and he started to flash a little bit before the hip injury um, he had a chance to really uh, grow into his role because everything that he struggles with, it really seems like can be fixed with game minutes. And mm-hmm. when you're not playing, you're not getting those obviously. So um, I would say they would, they potentially look to, uh, to consolidate, consolidate some of their assets and, and get an upgrade as at the big position. But also, I mean, I don't want to slander uh, Daniel Tyson and his Cantor who played really good. And, and look, could do some damage for them in the playoffs. So, you know, it's, it's a tough uh, thing uh, question to answer because it's like, well, who, like what position would you replace? Because you've got, you know, start and you probably got like eight starters, not really, but um, you know, you have Marcus smart as your, uh, as your, your stretch six as he likes to call it coming off the bench. I think he's a super sub and uh, Kemba's your point guard. You got Jalen, you got Hayward, you got Tatum. So, you know, I think all of those guys deserve to start, so it's going to be difficult to find an upgrade over them uh, that you can afford that would be really you know team changing. and I don't you know I don't know what's available out there. I don't know if they I don't think they can be players in the in the free agent market, so it would probably need to be trade so and who knows what's available? but I know that danny uh Danny won't sit back. I think he he did what he had to do this year because his hand was kind of forced with with Kyrie and then with um, with Al leaving. So he did what he did and he did a great job. And I think the fact that Tatum's taking taken that leap, you know, that might change the calculus a little bit for him.
0: Mm, definitely. And I think, like you were saying, there's not many upgrades to be made, but I still think, and you agree as well, I think, that they need to make that one sort of next little move maybe to make them that legit title contender. I don't know necessarily what that is. If it is a big, if it's someone else off the bench that you can acquire, but I think they just need to take that one extra step and i definitely too, would like to see them get a more athletic big if they can because even as great and tyson cantor were, it's a little bit tougher when you're going up against some more athletic guys and especially tyson isn't the biggest to begin with playing that center position
1: yeah absolutely i think you know bench scoring and 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 big upgrade would probably be the areas that i would look in um and who knows and it and you know just a matter of what's like i said before what's available out there on the trade market
0: mm mm-hmm. Something that just popped into my head that I have to bring up because I'm a big fan of his, um, when he was in Boston, do you think there's a chance that they bring back Isaiah Thomas, not for this year, obviously, but going forward in the future to give them sort of that bench score off the bench. Do you think there's a fit for him? And do you think that's something that Danny would entertain or not? Because he's already sort of shot that down for this season.
1: Yeah, I think that that would be tough because, uh, unfortunately, I think that injury was just, it just took, it took that, uh, that little bit of burst that Isaiah desperately needs um, for someone his size to be effective. Um, and once you lose that, he was, you know, that whole the whole Celtics team uh, that was successful with Isaiah was built around him. The offense was built around him. The defensive schemes were built around him uh, just because, you know, he tried hard, but he, he was just so little. He couldn't, you know, he just ran into a screen and was erased from the play. Um, and so a lot of what Brad did was to work around those and it worked great uh it got them as absolutely as far as they could possibly go getting to the conference finals but i just don't think that um especially with isaiah there's just too much like it just feels like too much to ask of him too like hey come back and be like the 14th guy maybe or like because like what are you going to promise him it's like a the first guy off the bench second guy off the bench um you know when we were talking about brink's trucks just like two and a half years ago, three years ago. So um, I just don't see it with Isaiah. And I love Isaiah Thomas, man. That season was by far my favorite to cover um, in my life, just because, you know, it reminded me of Iverson. I was joking him. Like it was like an efficient Iverson. It's like watching Iverson if he actually like made better than 42% of his shots, which mm-hmm. at the time when I was little, I was like, I didn't care. But now you look at it you're like, man, it's insane what he was able to do uh, shooting that many shots. Um, but Isaiah was just a real inspirational uh, player to follow and I'm pulling for him, but I just, I don't see a fit in Boston. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, that's what I was figuring, but still had to throw the question out there. So moving along, Max, um, one thing that I want to talk to you about is a little bit is your career. Just how did you end up at NBC sports Boston and just what happened to get you there?
1: Uh, So I went to Northeastern university. That's why I moved up from Philly um, for college And uh, they have a co-op program. And my first internship was at um, a channel called CN8 that no longer exists now. It was a Comcast channel. um, And they had a sports show, uh, Sports Pulse with Ed Berliner. And so that was my first internship. Uh, It was actually the year the Red Sox won the World Series in 04. So it was an incredible experience um, being in college at that time and then working at a sports station, too. But um, then I got... uh, One of the producers that I met there moved, uh, got a job at Nesson. So when my next uh, co op term came up, I reached out to him and I got an internship at Nesson. I got hired as a PA um, there and I was there for three years um, working on their uh, nightly sports show and then a a Bruins show called The Buzz. Uh, And one of my fellow, I was a production assistant, and one of my uh, fellow production assistants uh, went to Golf Channel and then went, uh, when, they launched comcast sportsnet up here when fox sportsnet turned into comcast sportsnet he got a job as a pa there and i reached out to him and i eventually got in as a freelance editor in 2010 uh and then within a year i got hired as a pa and in the beginning of the 13-14 season so brad's first year we had a kind of like a realignment with the i was an associate producer with the uh with the associate producers, uh, the the new manager put us in to show specific jobs because before we would just this is the day that you work you work on whatever show there is that day, um, and the guy asked me if I wanted to do just Celtics and I was just like oh my god yes please, um, so I kind of lucked out by getting assigned the Celtics beat as it is um, as the AP and I've been there ever since.
0: And so, what does that job entail for you on a day to day basis when there are games?
1: Okay, so for the game uh, game days, what I do is I help with the the rundown of the show, and and I'm also the backup producer if the producers um like on the road, because sometimes he'll go out and he'll do the the game production in the truck, uh, and so I'll take over as the the show producer um for the pre and post game show and halftime, um, but on my normal days it's you know I just help with the rundown, help build um with the ideas of what we're going to put in the show, what topics, and then a lot of the job is really finding. We have a lot of sponsored uh, elements that we have to fit into our show because it's the it's one of our highest rated studio shows that we do at NBC Sports Boston. So, you know, it's it's sold a lot. You know, there's a lot of sponsored elements in there. And so we have to try to fit those in without it seeming like it's a info, uh, an infomercial. So my one of my jobs is to make all the full screen graphics, the ones that show up full on your uh, your screen there. And assigning the uh, you know whatever sponsorship it is, and we have billboards like uh, like little mini commercial things that come in and out of uh, each commercial break that I have to make sure those are right. And that's you know it sounds pretty basic, but that takes a lot of time because you know it, there's just so many different options, and it's so important. You know you can get in a lot of trouble if you get that wrong. Um, and then we put the uh, all the graphics in. We put the the lower third names of every player that is interviewed, and I think that's where we have a lot of our fun. Um, you know, especially in post game, if the Celtics win, um, we make we make some funny ones on there that get screen grabbed, and the bosses all like that. So, uh, so yeah, we do the the graphics and deciding uh, what things to talk about, especially in the post game show with uh, the talent. So, like with Kyle Draper and with Scal, like what do you guys want to talk about? Should we have the editor cut this highlight, this highlight, this highlight? Um, and yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that, but that's basically what we do.
0: And how difficult is it to sort of decide what you're going to talk about in post game while the game is going on and while you're trying to, you know, do other things, whether that's look over to social media, um, stay in contact with the talent, like you said, and if they don't agree with you necessarily. So how do you just balance that whole juggling act?
1: Well, I make one eye go this way and I make one eye go that way. No, it's it's really difficult. It's, um, you know, it's watching sports. So, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I have a really, really hard job but it's complicated. It, it's, um, it's a challenge to be, you know, cause I try to watch every, every minute of the game, but also, you know, I have to monitor social media. I have to do my, my stupid little post game hit that I do with the memes and stuff like that. I gotta be looking out for that stuff and, you know, trends, st- stat trends, you know, if you look at the box score and the game, just kind of get an idea if there's something that, you know, you're missing with your eyes, the eye test isn't really, Oh man, well, look, because like especially something like bench points, you can kind of lose a handle on that unless you're looking at an updating uh box score. so uh it is a challenge uh so what we do is we just throw a lot of stuff at the editor and say, "Cut this, cut this, cut this," and thankfully he's our friend and he likes us and he doesn't um doesn't attack us afterwards um so that we have options and Kyle and Scal, if they have anything specific that they want they're they're pretty good about communicating that to us um for the most part. Cause they know that they can't just like ask for something and have it magically appear. Um, mm-hmm. Although some people have tried that and it's very frustrating. Um, but yeah, that is one of the, the harder parts is like just being on top. Cause when I say build a rundown, like there it's, there's a, like a big process of like just stacking a rundown in, in whatever program we're using, we use a program called AP, uh, EMPs. And then we're using a program called Delet. So we all had to learn a new system this year. And, uh, and so there's challenges with that. It's just, like I said, it's nothing hard. It's just a little tedious. And also while you're trying to pay attention to something else. But man, I, as I'm talking about it now, I just, it's all I want to do, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. man, I miss it so much because we don't have it, but it is, you know, it gets, it gets tiring and stressful. And and what what happens during the season is we do get a, get into like a flow, a a good routine. And it just, the days kind of just fly by and you don't spend a lot of time thinking about how busy you are or anything like that until the season's over. You look back and man, we were super busy during the season. Mm-hmm. and definitely
0: I think the post game show is something you guys do a really good job of in terms of providing analysis and talking about the game rather than talking about sort of that clickbait or hot hot take or sort of headline to sort of grab the viewers I think you do a good job you know if it's a game last year and Kyrie doesn't play well in the blast, you're going to talk about that and slam him but also if he plays well you're going to give him that credit or talk about some of the lower guys on the bench having a good game maybe that you wouldn't necessarily do If you were producing um, a national broadcast, so how do you guys manage trying to grab those viewers to come in? What if they want to hear sort of that hot take stuff versus actually giving them good analysis about the game?
1: So um, that's a great question. And it is a challenge because, um, you know, especially me when I first started, um, you know, I came up here, you know, from Philly and, you know, I'd been here for many years before I started uh, working at NBC Sports Boston, but I still had more of a national. Uh, view of the teams and when I was a freelance editor I would sit in with my friend uh, Steve who's the one that that was my connection uh, from Nesson who got me hired and he was an AP at the time and I was just an editor and we'd sit in and cut Celtics highlights together and we would just fight the whole time because I'm like I remember there's one Celtics Knicks highlight and he's like you know half of your plays are Knicks and half your plays are Celtics and I was just like yeah I'm just trying to show what happened in the game and he's like yeah, but you're just trying to show what's happening in the game like from a national perspective, not from the Boston fans' perspective. They care very little about the other team. And it was a battle, but it really helped me. It helped with my development. And so that's what we always have to remember in postgame. And that's why we don't do some of the more sensational clickbaity things. Um, it's because we have to remember that our audience is the same audience that's watching the game. It's the team. You know, they're watching the Celtics. They're Celtics fans, you know. They don't want us to lie to them, lie to them and blow smoke up their butts, But it's um, you know it's it's still uh you don't want to be negative unless you have to be you know like with Kyrie's a great example like you know he got rope you know because he was the star on the team and and it's not like you know you can't just like one bad game just jump on the guy it's like ah you know you, there's ways around it and it's not mm-hmm. like you're lying you're just like all right he had one bad game whatever um but that got to the point last year where we, it was such a struggle to be positive. It really was. And that was the hardest part was just like, how can we not just spend the whole entire show just skewering Kyrie? So thankfully for me, I didn't have to be on TV talking about it. It was really the guys like Kyle Draper and Brian Scalabrini, you know, Chris Forsberg, Chris Mannix, A. Shra Blakely, you know, Tommy can do whatever he wants and no one will complain. Mm-hmm. So he didn't, it wasn't a challenge for him because he's just Tommy. But, uh, yeah those were the guys that really had the, the struggle because we, you know, we just put these topics out there for them and they can answer it however they want. So we're giving them questions like, was this right? Was this right or that? And, they, and we want you know, the analysis uh, from the talent. You gotta lean on the talent in that situation. And so it really, it, it can be a battle. Um, but I am like, I lean I think too homery sometimes for the Celtics because I just think uh, objectively speaking, I'm like, man, why are we gonna be negative? You know, I, I don't want to hear negative things about the Celtics. I want to hear positive things about the Celtics. I just like—I would rather focus on the good things. I mean, if they lose, you got to talk about why they lost. But mm-hmm. I think you're going to alienate your audience if you if you focus too much on the bad things because they just want to be happy, right? We just want to, our teams to do good. Definitely. So
0: something you mentioned there um, with all the sort of different about, analysts, excuse me, that you have in there for the post-game show and pre-game show as well. So what's it like to work with some of them, whether it's Tommy or Scal or Mannix, or just what's it like working with such a wide range of people there?
1: So the range sometimes can be, like you have to produce differently for, uh, for the different analysts. Uh, Kyle is Kyle Draper is like the MVP for sure, because he makes it so much easier because he's been doing it so long. He's such a pro. I've forgotten to give him reads before. That's one of my other responsibilities. I have to make sure I print all the sponsored reads that he has to, you know, that go with the graphics, And I've forgotten to give them to him before. And he's just read them from memory. You know, like he's just really good and he covers up. He knows what he's supposed to do. So that's not the challenge, but it's how do you deal? Like you don't produce the the show the same way for Scal as the analyst as you do with Tommy for the analyst because they're just very different. You know, uh, the topics are the same, but how you present it, how you tell the story is is really um, is really different. And, you know, with Mannix, whenever Mannix is on, I always try to get like, let's make sure we get in around the NBA uh, segment in pregame. I want his national take because I view him. He's a Sports Illustrated national NBA writer. So mm-hmm. let's treat him like that. Um, so that's that's the real, um, you know, and it's not like hard. Anything, but it's just what the thought process that goes into it. So but everyone's great. They're all like super nice. Uh, it took Tommy, I think, about three years to stop taking what I said seriously, <laughs> because I've tried <laughs> to make so many jokes with the man and he would just look at me very perplexed. Uh, and then finally he got it that I was kidding around and we just had a great relationship ever since. Not that it wasn't good before, but uh, he's great. Cause he just goes off on tangents and stories. Like just, you bring up one thing um, like we brought up a Miller light commercial that he was in with uh Rodney Dangerfield in the eighties. Mm-hmm. He talked for like 35 minutes <laughs> about, the whole process that went into that commercial, it was incredible. It was one of those moments where you're looking around like, how's nobody recording this? Like we need to have him mic'd up for this. Uh, And just, he's great for that when you tee him up for, and you could literally ask him anything. um, And he'll answer it for sure. He'll try. I mean, I've asked him questions about memes and things like that. And he won't, uh, he won't be afraid to make fun of me uh, for asking a stupid question like that. So he's great. Scal's great too. He's like I always tell people about scout what I love about Scal is that he's he's self-aware he knows that it's weird that so many people love him from his playing days he's like look I don't get it man I was one of the worst guys on the team but these people come over to me trembling like oh I'm so glad I met you but he's like I'm not going to complain about it he you know he's certainly happy but he understands that it's weird and that's that's great it's great that he's got that kind of perspective um and and he also is just a great bully to have in the newsroom when he's around to just just jab at people manix is a little bit like that too um you know just keep everybody loose we can all bust each other's chops so it's good uh it's everyone i haven't worked with a DB yet so i'm happy about that mm-hmm. that's good
0: to hear so you were just mentioning how those guys and you also like to keep it light keep it loose especially it's sports It's something that's supposed to be fun so how did that sort of meme segment come, come about and what's been your interaction with weird celtics twitter
1: yeah, so it came about because um, the, when I was telling you about the lower third graph, the name graphics, I made one based off of uh, what Weird Celtics Twitter was, um, what was it? It was uh, Grit and Combat. It was Combat Muscles. They're just talking about Marcus Smart's Combat Muscles all the time. And, you know, I had spent years, you know, just asking uh, my boss, like, hey, can I put this on the name key? Can I put this in the name key? You know, knowing that they would say no, but I always just ask as a joke, just to keep it loose in the control room. Uh, and then one day he just said yes, and so I was like, "Oh, I'm doing it then." And ended up getting screen grabbed, and that was the um, the reason that a writer, Sean Heiken from, I think he was at Dime at the time, reached out to me about he was doing an article on Weird Celtics Twitter and. It was great right when it had started, and he reached out to me and and interviewed me about it. And so I showed it to Scal, and he brought up the idea of doing a segment on our weekly show, Celtics Post Up, about it. And he's like, "You break it down, Max." And so I was like, "All right, uh, okay, that's fine." And that was the genesis of it all. um Was Scal kind of suggesting it and then being cool with it? And so and he don't worry, he's never afraid to bring it up. He's like, "You wouldn't even be where you were if it weren't for me, Max." You know, so uh, that was really how it, uh, it, it started. And um, I've, in a way, always kind of engaged with weird Celtics Twitter without knowing when it was really a thing. You know, I remember somebody asking me like, what's the difference between Sixers Twitter and Celtics Twitter? And my answer at the time before I knew anything about the terminology, I was just like, well, Celtics Twitter is really weird. There's a lot of memes that, are, that I don't understand, but there's a lot that I do that are really just funny. And it's fun. And that's what I love about it. It's like, it's a sport, it's a game, it's entertainment and they're not taking themselves too seriously. And that's what I love about it. It's just, it's just a good time. It's just a good time. And that's what I try to uh, bring to those post game segments is just, this was the fun we had online today while you guys were trying to be serious.
0: And I think definitely that's something that reflects in the lower third graphics. I know that's something I always I always like to th- see. I think it's very funny, especially after after a win. It's nice to see that rather than you know just the stats coming down. It's a little wrinkle in it,
1: right? And what I always tell people is that because uh, I know the um, some of the departments were like, can you just give us a heads up if you're going to do them um, so that we can we can screen grab it? And I'm just be like, no, because I don't know. Like we uh, I work with uh, a kid named Mark who's just as good as I am at those. I mean he's very talented um super funny and some of the best hits have been him uh this season especially and we just don't plan it it just happens that's why i always tell you can't force it it just has to be like it just comes off your fingertips okay this is one that we're gonna do i never look like what funny thing can i write on marcus smart's name key today it's just like based on how the game went the feeling of the show you just it just has to kind of flow out and and that's really how it is um and that's what i love about it is that you can't really plan it. Uh, otherwise it would be bad. And sometimes they're not that funny. And it just, it's just, it started, it's kind of me being like a, like not a middle finger, but kind of like a stop taking sports so seriously, kind of like a, what are we even doing here? Like, why are we, why are you being so buttoned up about a game that's just supposed to be fun? And like, <laughs> we're not curing diseases here. You know, we're, we're not, we're not saving lives. We're just trying to entertain people and give them a break from their day. And so let's just have a little fun with it and not take ourselves so seriously. Because I can't. I can't. It it's, takes effort for me to take things seriously. It's a flaw. Uh, it's definitely <laughs> something wrong with my brain. But uh, in rare occasions, like the small little graphics that show up under players' heads on uh, post-game shows sometimes, it's a benefit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's better that way. No, no point in taking stuff seriously when you can have fun with it, right? 100%. So, Max, the last topic that I want to get to is, so the name of the podcast is For the Love of Sports. So when did your love for sports begin? Was basketball that first love for you? I know something we've talked about a little bit earlier on and throughout the show is that you're from Philly, grew up a Sixers fan. But So can you just talk to me about the beginning of your sports fandom?
1: Yeah, so um, I've always liked sports. Uh, I always played them and everything. And uh, my dad worked at the University of Pennsylvania and they had uh flyer season tickets. So we just got, we were so spoiled. We got to go to so many flyers games as kids. So I loved hockey. Um, the Sixers weren't great when I was little. Um, so I had only gone to like one or two games um, before Iverson and Iverson was the real inspiration for my love of basketball, but I was a big flyers fan. Uh, the Eagles were also pretty trash in my, my youth as well. Um, but everyone was obsessed with the Eagles and the Phillies were another one of my favorite teams, but they were always bad too. But we got just, tickets were so cheap. We went to like 10 games a year. Um, so that was part of our, like just our family tradition. We just, you know, went to a lot of flyers games and Phillies games. Uh, we rooted for the the Sixers and the, and the Eagles, but um, my real love for sports, I think, cause my brother, we had a, um, our neighbors had, I think eight boys and they were all like huge sports junkies and my brother was uh, always hanging out with them. And so he got really into sports. And so I looked up to my brother and so I was like, I wanted to like be really into sports too. And, um, and so that's, it was really, cause my brother, uh, was really into sports that I got into it. My dad took us to games and stuff, but he, you know, you know, I, he would tell me like one story from, the seventies flyers and that's it. Like he doesn't have like this, Oh, when I was a youth, we did this you know, he wasn't big into sports like that. My mom was actually my coach in all my sports, but she couldn't give a crap about professional sports. Um, so it was really my brother got me into it and, and I just, I just love it. Cause you know, especially basketball, cause you can play it with your friends. Um, or you can play it by yourself. Um, I spent my you know, competitive athletic career on the swim team. So I spent a lot of time in my own head underwater swimming. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time shooting, you know, just growing up by myself in my driveway or uh, playing one-on-one with my brother and getting whooped until I was 27. I finally beat him. And that was the last time I played him. Like I'm never playing me again. <laughs> I just um, But I just love that the basketball has, it just makes me feel good when I shoot. It makes me feel good when I play with my friends. It makes me feel great watching. Um, especially when you're, when you're practicing by yourself, because you can see the, the work, you can see the progress, even if it doesn't mean anything. Like I, when, you know, before the coronavirus, I go to the gym by myself and shoot in a gym that was empty and care about making them. And it's like, it doesn't matter if I miss or or make them, but it feels so good to see that more shots go in today than they went in yesterday because of all the shots that I took. And that's just such a, it's such a, like an example for anything in life. And, and that's what I love about sports in general is just that it's such an, a good analog for so many life situations you can look back on you know team success that you had you know working hard coming together you know it's the stories like the reason we love the Tom Brady story you know he was the 199th pick or whatever it was in the draft and then he you know the storybook where he becomes the best football player ever probably you know it's it's you know it's the hard work it's the Michael Jordan you know being obsessed with work and things like that and And even though none of us, or at least me and most of us, 99% of us can't ever compete uh, professionally at that level, uh, we can take that kind of attitude, um, that commitment to work, to getting better, um, to growing as a human, to anything, to your work. Um, It's one thing, honestly, that that Scal, um, that I noticed when he first started um, doing games with us and um, hosting the the pre- and post-game show, he was really aggressively trying to get better. He has that athlete mentality of like, how do I get better? How do I get better? Almost too much. We're just like, man, just be yourself. You know, that had to be taught to him, you know, like, or at least coached him. Like you, you just got to be yourself because that's what we like. That's what people like is you. Um, and, but I remember just, just seeing that and being like, that's, that's admirable. Like, that's a really good example. Like you can take that approach to anything in life. And it's, you know, it's why I, I, you know, I want to teach my kids that, you know, like that, You know, even if you're, you know, down three games to one in the NBA finals to the greatest regular season team in history, you still have a chance, you know, don't give up to the end because you never know when Draymond Green's going to kick somebody in the nuts and get suspended and you could come back and win, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I love sports for all those reasons and and so many more um, just because, I don't know, I love it.
0: See, Max, you care about if all those shots go in or not because you know that if the Celtics ever need you to hop into a practice, then you'll be ready to go. You'll be staying in shape. You're all set.
1: Oh man, I uh I I don't think I could like I'm I'm sure like I always tell people like, look, if you if it's just me by myself, I'll make 70% of my threes. But if you put me in a game situation or put some sort of like money on the line or just like want me to go prove that I can hit 70%, no, that's not happening. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't think so. I want the shots to go in just because man, I just want to be able to, uh, I want to bring value to my men's league team, you know?
0: There you go. So have you ever played with Scal before?
1: Uh, kind of. So, uh, two summers ago, me and Abby went to, uh, the big three practices that were in Boston, uh, Abby chin should say. Uh, and, and we did like a little stupid little on court video thing. Um, I was in khakis and a button up shirt and but he like ran a little fake play and ditched it out to me and I shot. It was my first shot of the day, NBA three point line, wearing a button up shirt. I think I hit the rim, but I may have missed. It was bad. So that's it. (laughs)
0: That's funny. So Max, what would you say your favorite uh, Scowl story would be?
1: Oh man, there's a lot to choose from. Um, Scal story i mean so many times uh just having fun on those post game hits are a good time but with scal, you just never know he'll tank your your hit on purpose like that's what i tell me like he'll if he's in a mood he's he's gonna like i'm not gonna laugh at any jokes max and i'm just gonna make you flounder up there uh and usually i have my guy draper uh help me out but sometimes they're both they just want to they just want to tank my segment um but, uh, you know, it's got to be just some of the memes and stuff just making making him laugh because uh, he's got a really contagious laugh. Anytime I hit with one of my jokes on the postgame show, it's such a good feeling because, uh, you know, he'll on live television bully me if he doesn't like it. And so it's just <laughs> that it's some sort of like messed up older brother complex where I've just been beaten down so many times. that just to get him to laugh feels so good. Um, I can't think of anything really good. Off the top of my head, I'm sure as soon as this is over, I'll think of some, but, um, you know, he's just a good dude. Um, he's, one time I made a joke with him, he left his wallet on my uh, on my desk, uh, and I just made a joke, I was like, oh man, you better be careful, some money might be, you know, might be missing, and he just looked at me all serious, he's like, bro, if you ever need money, just ask, you know, like, I got you, you're my, you're my guy, and, and it was like, I'm just kidding, Scal, but can you send my kids to college? Um, so you know he's just a good dude uh fun guy to to hang around with and uh we don't see him a ton to be honest because I'm always in the in the studio and he's generally on the road for the road games Mm -hmm. or at the garden for the home games so the few times I do see him they're always pretty good I'm I'm pretty sure we we'd probably grind each other a little too much if we had to see each other more than that though
0: so something you just mentioned I was actually going to ask you earlier but I forgot what how is that transition for you going from doing all of your producing duties to actually hopping in front of the cameras and doing that. Had you done much on-camera work before? Is this something that's new to you?
1: It was completely new to me. Um, It was, uh, I was nervous about being nervous the first time. I was really kind of like, I hope I don't clam up. but then once, once the light went on, it was just like, I felt really good about how nervous I wasn't like, I really didn't feel nervous. Um, I'm more nervous talking in a big group of people than to a camera of thousands of people. Um, because I, I just don't know it. Uh, my sister's a stand up comedian and I I've talked to her about it before. And you know her trick is just, you know, just lie to yourself and tell yourself that you're awesome and that you're going to do great. And, <laughs> and that's it. And it, and it works. So, uh, I had no experience in front of a camera, um, you know, other than like just doing man on the street interviews as like a PA at Nesson and stuff like that. Um, But that was it. And uh, it was different, but I I think it's a great experience because I feel rushed by the producer sometimes in my ear. And it, it really, it just adds so much perspective for my job as a producer. Like I have to understand while I'm in this guy's ear and he's talking that's probably like incredibly difficult and you you know you know that as a producer anyway but like really when you're on camera uh you're trying to listen to the other person say something to you and then you got a producer in your ear and you completely can't hear what the other person's saying unless you're in the same room with them and I'm never really in the same room as them I'm usually in a different studio so that that's a challenge and just kind of that, that perspective is is helpful and it's also when you're uh when you're planning your segment i mean i i produce the segment you know so, but like just ideas and stuff like that. It's it's a fun little marriage of my my two worlds for two to five minutes uh, every other night during the basketball season, you know? But uh, it, is, it has added a lot of perspective to my producing job and, and valuable perspective. I think that um, when I was an editor, becoming a, a producer after that was super helpful too. Like kind of understanding like, do I really need to ask the editor to do this? Because I remember when I was an editor, I remember really being overwhelmed with too many, you know b-roll requests that don't get used so if we're not going to use this piece of video i'm not going to burden the editor with it so i think that's the one great thing about working at nbc sports boston i always tell people like man i don't get told no a lot i mean if the answer's no they'll they'll say it but it's usually like well let's talk this idea through and let's figure out a way to make it work and it's just a really um a really good environment for the people that want to do different things you know a lot of people just kind of are happy doing what they do and they're good at it and that's great but if you do want to do like dip your toes in other things i've been able to write for the website when like literally whenever i want um so uh it's a great uh place it kind of just because it just adds perspective and makes you better at your job that you do regularly see they stopped
0: telling you no because those lower third graphics were such a hit so they're like yeah mm-hmm. max sure yeah whatever do what you want
1: I wish I could uh, figure out a, a mon- monetary value to getting your your lower third graphic screen grabbed. I don't think it's <laughs> much. I don't think it adds much to the bottom line, but uh those are fun and I was really nervous about um the reaction to the bosses, like the big bosses, but they they do like it, so it makes me feel good. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I told my mom and she didn't know anything that I was talking about, but she said she was proud.
0: <laughs> That's funny. All right, last question and then I'll get you out of here. So you're mentioning your mens league team that you play on. So who is your pickup or your men's league basketball comparison? What's your play style?
1: Oh man, so I'm like a stretch four that can't rebound, is not athletic, <laughs> and can't defend, and isn't really good at shooting threes. But that's always what I've been because I'm 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 the body of a guard because I'm short, the skill set of a big that's bad. <laughs> um, but no, I just chuck threes. And, uh, I mean, I played in a men's league this past year for the first, it was the first time I played in a league in probably 10 years. My, in my prime, I was just like a, like Brad Marchand, if he was what he was supposed to be, um, when, you know, he be, ended up being a great scorer, but he was supposed to kind of just be like a rat, just get under people's skin. And that's what I did just cause I was bad. I just talked a lot of trash, fouled, but never got called for it because I was smaller than everyone. Um, I mean, not everyone, I'm not that short. I'm five eight for those of you wondering. Um, but, uh, you know, just kind of a team glue guy, I'll say to give myself a little bit more credit than I deserve. Um, but men's league now, I just chuck, I just shoot and try not to screw up.
0: There you go. Shooters
1: mentality. That's right.
0: Well, Max, that's all I got for you. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Hey, Ian, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: No problem. And I hope you and your family stay safe and hopefully we'll be seeing the Celtics play again sometime soon.
1: Thanks man. You too.